Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain, Volume 5, Chapter 3, Part 7. It was a one hope that I would actually become better, but the last week or ten days that I was in Rome were very happy and full of joy, and on one of those afternoons I took the trolley out to San Paolo, and after that got on a small rickety bus which went up a country road into a shallow saucer of a valley in the low hills south of the Tiber, to the Trappist monastery of Trefontaine. I went in the dark, austere old church and liked it, but I was scared to visit the monastery. I thought the monks were too busy sitting in their graves beating themselves with disciplines. So I walked up and down in the silent afternoon under the eucalyptus tree, and the thought grew on me. I should like to become a Trappist monk. There was very little danger of me doing so then. The thought was only a daydream, and I suppose it was a dream that comes to many men, even men who don't believe in anything. Is there any man who has ever gone through a whole lifetime without dressing himself up in his fancy, in the habit of a monk, and enclosing himself in a cell where he sits magnificent in heroic austerity and solitude, while all the young ladies who hitherto were cool to his affections in the world would come and beat on the gates of the monastery, crying out, Come out! Come out! Ultimately, I suppose that is what my dream that day amounted to. I had no idea what Trappist monks were, or what they did, except that they kept silence. In fact, I also thought they lived in cells like the Carthusians, all alone. In the bus, going back to San Paolo, I ran into a student from the American Academy whom I knew. He was riding with his mother and introduced me to her, and we talked about the monastery. And I said I wished I were a monk. The student's mother looked at me with a horror and astonishment so extreme that I was really a little shocked by it. The days went by. Letters came from America telling me to take the boat and come there. Finally, I bade farewell to the Italian typewriter salesman and the other inhabitants of the pensione, including the lady who ran the place and whose mother had been overwhelmed with thoughts of death when I played St. Louis Blues on the piano, sending in the maid to ask me to desist. With sorrow in my heart, I saw the last of the Piazza Barberini and the big curved boulevard that ran into it, and the last of the Pincio Gardens and St. Peter's Dome in the distance and the Piazza di Spagna. But above all, I had sorrow and emptiness in my heart at leaving my beloved churches. San Pietro in Vincoli, Santa Maria Maggiore, San Giovanni in Laterno, Santa Pudenziana, Santa Praseda, Santa Sabina, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, Santa Maria in Cosmedin, Santa Maria in Trastavere, Santa Agnese, San Clemente, Santa Cecilia. The train crossed the Tiber. The little pyramid and the cypresses of the English cemetery where Keats was buried disappeared. I remembered some allusion in Plotus to a big hill of rubbish and pot shards that had once stood in this part of the city. Then we came out into the bare plain between Rome and the sea. In this distance were San Paolo and the low hills that concealed the Trappist monastery of Trefontaine. Oh, Rome, I said in my heart, will I ever see you again? The first two months after I landed in New York and went to the house in Douglaston, I continued to read the Bible surreptitiously. I was afraid that someone might make fun of me. And since I slept on the sleeping porch, which opened on the upstairs hall through glass doors, and which, in any case, I shared with my uncle, 
I no longer dared to pray on my knees before going to sleep, though I'm sure everybody would have been pleased and edified. The real reason for this was that I did not have the humility to care nothing about what people thought or said. I was afraid of their remarks, even kind ones, even approving ones. Indeed, it is a kind of quintessence of pride to hate and fear even the kind and legitimate approval of those who love us. I mean, to resent it as a humiliating patronage. There's no point in telling all the details of how this real but temporary religious fervor of mine cooled down and disappeared. At Easter, we went to the church where my father had once been the organist, Zion Church, with the white spire standing among the locust trees on the hills between us and the station. And there I was very irritated by the services, and my own pride increased the irritation and complicated it. And I used to walk about the house or sit at the dinner table telling everybody what a terrible place Zion Church was and condemning everything that it stood for. One Sunday, I went to the Quaker meeting house in Flushing, where Mother had once sat and meditated with the friends. I sat down there, too, in a deep pew in the back near a window. The place was about half full. The people were mostly middle-aged or old, and there was nothing that distinguished them in any evident way from the congregation in a Methodist or a Baptist or an Episcopalian or any other Protestant church, except that they sat in silence waiting for the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. I liked that. I liked the silence. It was peaceful. In it, my shyness began to die down, and I ceased to look about and criticize the people, and entered somewhat superficially into my own soul, and some nebulous good resolutions began to take shape there. But it didn't get very far, for presently one of the middle-aged ladies thought the Holy Ghost was after her to get up and talk. I secretly suspect that she had come to the meeting all prepared to make a speech anyway, for she reached into her handbag as she stood up and cried out in a loud, earnest voice, When I was in Switzerland, I took this snapshot of the famous Lion of Lucerne. With that, she pulled out a picture. Sure enough, it was the famous Lion of Lucerne. She held it up and tried to show it around to the friends, at the same time explaining that she thought it was a splendid exemplification of Swiss courage and manliness and patience, and all the other virtues of the watchmaking Swiss which she recommended and which I had now forgotten. The friends accepted it in patience without enthusiasm or resentment, but I went out of the meeting house saying to myself, they're just like all the rest. In other churches, it's the minister who hands out the commonplaces, and here it's liable to be just about anybody. Still, I think I had enough sense to know it would be madness to look for a group of people, a society, a religion, a church from which all mediocrity would absolutely be excluded. But when I read the works of William Penn, and found them to be about as supernatural as a Montgomery Ward catalog, I lost interest in the Quakers. If I had run across something by Evelyn Underhill, it might have been different. I think that one could find much earnest and pure and humble worship of God and much sincere charity among the Quakers. Indeed, you're bound to find a little of this in every religion, but I have never seen any evidence of it rising above its natural order They are full of natural virtues, and some of them are contemplatives in a natural sense of the word. Nor are they excluded from God's graces, if he wills, for he loves them, and he will not withhold his light from the good people anywhere. Yet I cannot see that they will ever be anything more than what they claim to be, a society of friends. That summer, 
when I went on a slow and dirty train in a roundabout way to Chicago to see the World's Fair, I picked up two pamphlets on the Mormons in the Hall of Religion. But the story of the holy books discovered through revelation on a hill in upper New York State did not exactly convince me, and I was not converted. The thin red and yellow walls of the palaces of the fair, scattered between the lake and the slums and the freight yards, amused me with their noise, and for the first time I walked in the open air of the flat and endless Middle West. Out of sheer bravado, I got myself a job for a few days as a barker in front of a sideshow in a part of the fair called the Streets of Paris, the nature of which is sufficiently evident from that name. The ease with which I got the job astounded and flattered me, and it gave me a sense of power and importance to be so suddenly transported from the order of those who were fleeced of their money to the level of those who did the fleecing. However, in a couple of days I also discovered that perhaps I had not risen very far above the ranks of the suckers after all, since the boss of the sideshow was more ready to pay me in promises and fancy words than in dollars for my services. Besides, it was very tiring to stand in the heat and dust from noon to midnight, shouting at the sea of straw-hatted heads and shoulders dressed in duck and seersucker or in open-necked shirts and dresses soaked with healthy Middle Western sweat. The absolutely open and undisguised non-committal frankness of the paganism of Chicago and of this fair and of this particular part of the fair and apparently of the whole country which it represented amazed me after the complicated reticences of England and the ornate pornography of France. When I got back to New York, I had lost most of my temporary interest in religion. My friends in that city had a religion of their own, the cult of New York itself, and the peculiar manner in which Manhattan expressed the bigness and gaudiness and noisiness and frank animality and vulgarity of the American paganism. I used to go to the burlesque and hang around 14th Street with Reg Marsh, who was an old friend of my father's and who was famous for painting all those things in his pictures. Reginald Marsh was, and I suppose still is, a thick-set man of short stature who gave the impression that he was a retired lightweight prize fighter. He had a way of talking out of the corner of his mouth, and yet at the same time his face had something babyish and cherubic about it as he looked out at the world through the simple and disinterested and uncritical eyes of an artist, taking everything as he found it and considering everything as possible subject matter for one of his Hogarthian compositions, provided only it was alive. We got along very well together because of the harmony of our views, I worshipping life as such and he worshipping it especially in the loud, wild bedlam of the crowded, crazy city that he loved. His favorite places of devotion were Union Square and the Irving Place Burlesque, stinking of sweat and cheap cigars and ready to burn down or collapse any minute. But I guess his cathedral was Coney Island. Everybody who has ever seen his pictures knows that much about Reg Marsh. All that summer, I hung around his 14th Street studio and went with him to many of the parties to which he was invited and got to know my way around New York. But when September came, I sailed for England once more. This time, I made this crossing on the Manhattan, a garish and turbulent cabin-class steamer full of Nazi spies working as stewards and detesting the Jewish passengers. The voyage was a violent one. One night, I looked down one of the deep stairwells and saw six or seven half-drunk passengers having a general fight on the swaying linoleum floor of E-deck. 
And one afternoon, in the middle of one of those paralyzing synthetic amusements that are fixed up for the passengers on Atlantic liners, I think it must have been the horse race, as the American dentist stood up with a loud roar and challenged a French tailor to come out and fight on the promenade deck. The challenge was not taken up, but all the businessmen and tourists savored the delicious scandal, for there was no one on board who was not aware that behind it all stood the six-foot daughter of someone prominent in Washington, D.C. At Plymouth, they put those of us who were bound for London on a fat launch in the middle of the harbor, and once again, I looked upon the pale green downs of England. I landed with one of the worst colds I've ever had in my life. And so, on the tide of all these circumstances of confusion, I swept into the dark, sinister atmosphere of Cambridge and began my university career. Part 8 Perhaps to you the atmosphere of Cambridge is neither dark nor sinister. Perhaps you were never there except in May. You never saw anything but the thin spring sun half-veiled in the mists and blossoms of the gardens along the backs, smiling on the lavender bricks and stones of Trinity and St. John's or my own college, Clare. I'm even willing to admit that some people might live there for three years or even a lifetime so protected that they never sense the sweet stench of corruption that is all around them, the keen, thin scent of decay that pervades everything and accuses, with a terrible accusation, the superficial youthfulness, the abounding undergraduate noise that fills these ancient buildings. But for me, with my blind appetites, it was impossible that I should not rush in and take a huge bite of this rotten fruit. The bitter taste is still with me after not a few years. My freshman year went by very fast. It was a dizzy business that began in the dark, brief afternoons of the English autumn and ended after a short series of long summer evenings on the river. All those days and nights were without romance. Horrible. They could not help being everything that I did not want them to be. I was breaking my neck trying to get everything out of life that you think you can get out of it when you're 18. I ran with a pack of hardies who wore multicolored scarves around their necks and who would have barked all night in the echoing shadows of the petty curie if they had not been forced to go home to bed at a certain time. At first it was confusing. It took me a month or two to find my level in this cloudy, semi-liquid medium in whose dregs I was ultimately destined to settle. There were my friends from Oakham. At first we clung together for protection and used to spend much time in one another's rooms although Andrew's digs were far and away in the wilds above Addenbrooke's hospital. To get there, I cycled through a mysterious world of new buildings dedicated to chemistry, and at the end of the journey drank tea and played St. Louis blues on the piano. Dickens was much nearer. He was around the corner from my lodgings. You traveled through two or three courts of St. John's College and crossed the river. He was in the so-called new building. His room directly overlooked the river, and he and I and Andrew would eat breakfast there and throw bits of toast to the ducks while he told us all about Pavlov and conditioned reflexes. As the year went on, I drifted apart from them, especially from Andrew, who ended up as the leading man in the Footlight show that year. He was something of a singer. My crowd had no interest in singing, and a certain amount of contempt, indeed, for the Footlights and all that they represented. I remember that I almost made friends with one or two serious and somewhat complicated young men who were reading modern languages with me and belonged to my own college, but their reticences bored me. 
and they in their turn were rather shocked by the two-handed hardiness with which I was grabbing at life. In the room underneath mine, in my lodgings, was a round, red-faced Yorkshire man who was a pacifist. He, too, was full of reticences. But on Armistice Day, he got into some kind of demonstration, and all the rugger players and oarsmen threw eggs at him. I knew nothing about it until I saw the pictures in the evening paper. I would not have been interested in making friends with him either. He was too shy and tame. But in any case, the landlord took to coming into my room and calumniating the poor man while I listened patiently, knowing of no way to shut him up. Before the end of the year, the landlord was much more disgusted with me than any lodger he had ever had before, or probably since. I think it was after Armistice Day, when I had finally become acquainted with some 200 different people, that I drifted into the crowd that had been gravitating around the nether pole of Cambridge life. We were the ones who made all the noise when there was a bump supper. We lived in the Lion Inn. We fought our way in and out of the Red Cow. In that year, most of my friends were gated at one time or another, and by the end of it, not a few of us were sent down. I cannot even clearly remember who most of them were, except for Julian. He stands out vividly enough. He wore horn-rimmed spectacles and looked, I will not say like an American, but like a Frenchman trying to look like an American. He could tell long, complicated stories in an American accent, too nasal to be true. He was the grandson or great-grandson of a Victorian poet and lived in the old man's house on the Isle of Wight. He roomed in a big rabbit warren of a place on Market Hill, which was going to be torn down at the end of the year to make room for a new building belonging to Caius College. Before the wreckers came in, Julian's friends had already begun the ruin of the house by attempting to destroy the precarious section of it where he himself lived. I seem to remember some trouble when somebody threw a teapot out the window of these rooms and nearly brained the Dean of Kings, who was passing by in the street below. Then there was a laconic, sallow-faced fellow who came from Oodle and drove a racing car. He sat still and quiet most of the time with the strange, fevered mysticism of the racing driver in his veins while the rest of us talked and yelled. But when he got under the wheel of his car, which he was not allowed to drive as a freshman, he was transformed into a strange sort of half-spiritual being, possessed by a weird life belonging to another frightening world. The prohibition on driving could not, of course, hold him. Once in a while, he would disappear. Then he would come back relatively happy and sit down and play poker with anybody who would take him on. I think he was finally set down altogether for the wildest of his expeditions, which ended with him trying to drive his car down one of the zigzag cliff paths at Bournemouth. But why dig up all this old scenery and reconstruct the stews of my own mental Pompeii after enough years have covered them up? Is it even worth the obvious comment that in all this I was stamping the last remains of spiritual vitality out of my own soul and trying with all my might to crush and obliterate the image of the divine liberty that had been implanted in me by God? With every nerve and fiber of my being, I was laboring to enslave myself in the bonds of my own intolerable disgust. There is nothing new or strange about the process. But what people do not realize is that this is the crucifixion of Christ, in which he dies again and again in the individuals who were made to share this joy and freedom of his grace and who deny him. Aunt Maud died that November. I found my way to London and to Ailing and was at the funeral. It was a gray afternoon and rainy almost dark as night. Everywhere the lights were on, 
It was one of those short, dark, foggy days of the early English winter. Uncle Ben sat in a wheelchair, broken and thin, with a black skull cap on his head. This time he really did look like a ghost. He seemed to have lost the power of speech and looked about him with blank uncomprehension, as if all this story of a funeral were a gratuitous insult to his intelligence. Why were they trying to tell him that Maud was dead? They committed the thin body of my poor Victorian angel to the clay of ailing and buried my childhood with her. In an obscure, half-conscious way, I realized this and was appalled by it. She it was who had presided, in a certain sense, over my most innocent days. And now I saw those days buried with her in the ground. Indeed, the England I had seen through the clear eyes of her own simplicity, that too had died for me there. I could no longer believe in the pretty country churches, the quiet villages, the elm trees along the commons where the cricketers wait in white while the bowler pensively paces out a run for himself behind the wicket, the huge white clouds that sail over Sussex, the bell charm spires of the ancient county towns, the cathedral closes full of trees, the deaneries that ring with rooks. None of this any longer belonged to me, for I had lost it all. Its fragile web of charmed associations had been broken and blown away, and I had fallen through the surface of old England into hell, the vacuum and horror that London was nursing in her avaricious heart. It was the last time I saw any of my family in England. I took the last train back to Cambridge and was so exhausted that I fell asleep and woke at Eli and had to turn back so that I got in long after midnight. And I felt offended at being gated for what was not, as I thought, my fault. It was the first of the two times I was gated that year. Shall I follow the circle of the season down into the nadir of winter darkness and wake up the dirty ghosts under the trees of the backs and out beyond the Clare New Building and in some rooms down in Chesterson Row? When it began to be spring, I was trying to row in the Clare fourth boat, although it nearly killed me. But at least, since we were supposed to be in training, I got up early for a few weeks and went to the college for breakfast and went to bed without being too dizzy in the nighttime. In those days, I seem to remember, there was a little sunlight. It fell through the ancient windows of Professor Bulow's room in Caius. It was a large, pleasant room, lined with books and with windows opening on the grass of two courts. It was below the level of those lawns, and you had to go down a couple of steps to get into his sitting room. In fact, I think his sitting room itself was on two levels, and in the corner he had a high medieval lectern. There he stood, a tall, thin, gray, somewhat ascetic scholar, placidly translating Dante to us, while ten or a dozen students, men and women, sat in the chairs and followed in our Italian texts. In the winter term we had begun with the Inferno, and had progressed slowly, taking each day part of a canto. And now Dante and Virgil had come through the icy heart of hell, where the three-headed devil chewed the greatest traitors, and had climbed out to the peaceful sea at the foot of the seven-circled mountain of purgatory. And now in the Christian Lent, which I was observing without merit and without reason, for the sake of a sport which I had grown to detest because I was so unsuccessful in it, we were climbing from circle to circle of purgatory. 
I think the one great benefit I got out of Cambridge was this acquaintance with the lucid and powerful genius of the greatest Catholic poet, greatest in stature, though not in perfection or sanctity. Because of his genius, I was ready to accept all that he said about such things as purgatory and hell, at least provisionally, as long as I had the book under my eyes, in my own terms. That was already much. I suppose it would have been too much to expect some kind of appreciation of his ideas to myself in the moral order, just because I happened to have a sort of aesthetic sensitiveness to them. No, it seems to me I was armored and locked within my own defectible and blinded self by seven layers of imperviousness. The capital sins, which only the fires of purgatory or divine love, they are about the same, can burn away. But now I was free to keep away from the attack of those flames merely by averting my will from them. And it was by now permanently and habitually turned away and immunized. I had done all I could to make my heart untouchable by charity and had fortified it, as I hoped, impregnably in my own impenetrable selfishness. At the same time, I could listen and listen with gladness and a certain intentness to the slow and majestic progress of the myths and symbols in which Dante was building up a whole poetic synthesis of scholastic philosophy and theology. And although not one of his ideas took firm root in my mind, which was both too coarse and too lazy to absorb anything so clean, nevertheless, there remained in me a kind of armed neutrality in the presence of all these dogmas, which I tended to tolerate in a vague and general way in bulk insofar as that was necessary to an understanding of the poem. This, as I see it, was also a kind of grace, the greatest grace in the positive order that I got out of Cambridge. All the rest were negative. They were only graces in the sense that God in his mercy was permitting me to fly as far as I could from his love, but at the same time preparing to confront the end of it all and at the bottom of the abyss when I thought I had gone farthest away from him. Si ascendero in celum tu ilic es, si descendero in infernum adis. For in my greatest misery, he would shed into my soul enough light to see how miserable I was, and to admit that it was my own fault and my own work. And always I was to be punished for my sins by my sins themselves, and to realize, at least obscurely, that I was being so punished that I would burn in the flames of my own hell and rot in the hell of my own corrupt will until I was forced at last by my own intense misery to give up my own will. I had tasted something of this before, but that was nothing compared to the bitterness that soon began to fill me in that year at Cambridge. The mere realization of one's own unhappiness is not salvation. It may be the occasion of salvation, or it may be the door to a deeper pit to hell and I had much deeper to go than I realized. But now at least I realized where I was, and I was beginning to try to get out. Some people may think that Providence was very funny and very cruel to allow me to choose the means I now chose to save my soul. But Providence, that is the love of God, is very wise in turning away from the self-will of men and in having nothing to do with them and leaving them to their own devices, as long as they are intent on governing themselves to show them to what depths of futility and sorrow their own helplessness is capable of dragging them. And all the irony and cruelty of this situation came, not from providence, but from the devil, 
who thought he was cheating God of my stupid and uninteresting little soul. So it was then that I began to get all the books of Freud and Jung and Adler out of the big redecorated library of the Union and to study, with all the patience and application which my hangovers allowed me, the mysteries of sex repression and complexes and introversion and extroversion and all the rest. I, whose chief trouble was that my soul and all its faculties were going to seed because there was nothing to control my appetites, and they were pouring themselves out into an incoherent riot of undirected passion, came to the conclusion that the cause of all my unhappiness was sex repression. And to make the thing more subtly intolerable, I came to the conclusion that one of the biggest crimes in the world was introversion. And in my efforts to be an extrovert, I entered upon a course of reflections and constant self-examinations, studying all my responses and analyzing the quality of all my emotions and reactions in such a way that I could not help becoming just what I did not want to become, an introvert. Day after day, I read Freud, thinking myself to be very enlightened and scientific when, as a matter of fact, I was about as scientific as an old woman secretly poring over books about occultism, trying to tell her own fortune, and learning how to dope out the future from the lines in the palm of her hand. I don't know if I ever got very close to needing a padded cell, but if I had ever gone crazy, I think psychoanalysis would have been the one thing chiefly responsible for it. Meanwhile, I had received several letters from my guardian. They were sharp and got sharper as they went on, and finally in March or April, I got a curt summons to come to London. I had to wait a long time, a long, long time, in the waiting room where I turned over the pages of all the copies of Punch for two years back. I suppose this was part of a deliberate plan to sap my morale, this leaving me alone in a dismal, foggy room with all those copies of that dreary magazine. Finally, after about an hour and a half, I was summoned to climb the narrow stairs to the consulting room immediately above. The floor was waxed, and once again I got this sense of precariousness in my footing and was glad to get across the room to the chair by the desk without falling down and breaking a hip. With polished and devastating coolness, which carried with it a faint suggestion of contempt, Tom offered me a cigarette. The implication was I was going to need it. Therefore, I obviously refused it. Nevertheless, the fifteen or twenty minutes that followed were among the most painful and distressing I have ever lived through, not because of anything that he said to me, for he was not angry or even unkind. In fact, I do not even remember exactly what he did say. The thing that made me suffer was that he asked me very bluntly and coldly for an explanation of my conduct and left me to writhe. For as soon as I was placed in the position of having to give some kind of positive explanation or defense of so much stupidity and unpleasantness, as if to justify myself by making it seem possible for a rational creature to live that way, the whole bitterness and emptiness of it became very evident to me, and my tongue would hardly function. And the words I murmured about my making mistakes and not wanting to hurt others sounded extremely silly and cheap. So I was very glad to get out of there, and as soon as I was in the street, I smoked plenty of cigarettes. Months went by, and things did not change at all. After the Easter vacation, I was called into my tutor to explain why I was not attending most of my lectures, and a few other things besides. 
This time, I was not so uncomfortable. As to the exams that were soon to come, I was to take the first part of the modern language tripos in French and Italian. I thought I would be able to pass them, which as a matter of fact I did, getting a second in both. The results were wired to me by one of my friends when I was already on the boat for America, one of those ten-day boat trips out of London. We were going through the Straits of Dover and the sun was on the white cliffs and my lungs were filling with the fresh air. I was planning to come back next year and had already arranged for a room in the old court of Clare, right over the gate that led out to Clare Bridge. I would have looked out over the president's garden, but certainly, considering the kind of undergraduate I was, that was the worst possible place for me to have wanted a room, for I was right in between the president and the senior tutor. However, I never went up to Cambridge again as a member of the university. That summer, Tom sent me a letter in New York suggesting that I had better give up the idea of ever entering the British diplomatic service, and that Cambridge was, henceforth, useless. To return would be a waste of my time and money. He thought it would be very sensible if I stayed in America. It did not take me five minutes to come around to agreeing with him. I do not know whether it was entirely subjective, but it seemed to me there was some kind of a subtle poison in Europe, something that corrupted me, something the very thought and scent of which sickened me, repelled me. But what was it? Some kind of moral fungus, the spores of which floated in the damp air in that foggy and half-lit darkness? The thought that I was no longer obliged to go back into those damp and fetid mists filled me with immense relief, a relief that far overbalanced the pain of my injured pride, the shame of comparative failure. I say I was no longer obliged to return, I would have to go back long enough to get on the quota and enter America permanently. For now, I was only in the country on a temporary visa. But that did not matter so much. The feeling that I did not have to stay was another liberation. Once again, I asked myself if it was not mostly subjective. Perhaps it was, for I do not accuse the whole of England of the corruption that I had discovered in only part of it. Nor do I blame England for this as a nation, as if it alone was infected by the sweet and nasty disease of the soul that seemed to be rotting the whole of Europe in high places above all. It was something I had not known or seen in the England of those first days when I had been a child and walked in the innocent countryside and looked at the old village churches and read the novels of Dickens and wandered by the streams on picnics with my aunt and cousins. What was wrong with this place, with all these people? Why was everything so empty? Above all, why did the very boisterousness of the soccer blues, the rugger players, the cricketers, the oarsmen, the huntsmen and drinkers and the lion and the clumsy dancers in the rendezvous, why was all their noise so oafish and hollow and ridiculous? It seemed to me that Cambridge, and to some extent the whole of England, was pretending with an elaborate and intent and conscience, that perhaps in some cases a courageous effort to act as if it were alive. And it took a lot of acting. It was a vast and complicated charade, with expensive and detailed costuming and scenery, and a lot of inappropriate songs. And yet the whole thing was so intolerably dull, because most of the people were already morally dead, asphyxiated, by the steam of their own strong yellow tea, or by the smell of their own pubs and breweries, or 
by the fungus on the walls of Oxford and Cambridge. I speak of what I remember. Perhaps the war that grew out of all this did something to cure it or change it. For those who had nothing but this emptiness in the middle of them, no doubt the things that they had to do and suffer during the war filled that emptiness with something stronger and more resilient than their pride. Either that or it destroyed them utterly. But when I had been away from Cambridge about a year, I heard what happened to one of them, a friend of mine. Mike was a beefy, red-faced, and noisy youth who came from somewhere in Wales and was part of the crowd in which I milled around in the daytime and the nighttime during that year at Cambridge. He was full of loud laughter and a lot of good, well-meaning exclamations. And in his quiet moments, he got into the long and complicated sentences about life. But what was more characteristic of him was that he liked to put his fist through windows. He was the noisy and hearty type. He was altogether jolly, a great eater and drinker. He chased after girls with an astounding heaviness of passion and emotion. He managed to get into a lot of trouble. That was the way it was when I left Cambridge. The next year I heard how he ended up. The porter or somebody went down into the showers under the buildings of the old court at Clare and found Mike hanging by his neck from a rope slung over one of the pipes with his big hearty face black with the agony of strangulation. He had hanged himself. The Europe I finally left for good in the late November of 1934 was a sad and unquiet continent full of forebodings. Of course, there were plenty of people who said there will not be a war, but Hitler had now held power in Germany for some time, and that summer all the New York evening papers had been suddenly filled with the news of Dolphus's murder in Austria and the massing of Italian troops on the Austrian borders. It was one of the nights when I was down at Coney Island with Reginald Marsh, and I walked into the world of lights and noise and drank glasses of thin icy beer and ate hot dogs full of mustard and wondered if I would soon be in some army or other or perhaps dead. It was the first time I had felt the cold steel of the war scare in my vitals. There was a lot more to come, and it was only 1934. And now, in November, when I was leaving England forever, the ship sailed quietly out of Southampton water by night. The land I left behind me seemed silent with the silence before a storm. It was a land all shut up and muffled in layers of fog and darkness, and all the people were in the rooms behind the thick walls in their houses, waiting for the first growl of thunder as the Nazis began to warm up the motors of a hundred thousand planes. Perhaps they did not know they were waiting for all this. Perhaps they thought they had nothing better to occupy their minds than the wedding of Prince George and Princess Marina, which had taken place the day before. Even I was more concerned with the thought of some people I was leaving than the political atmosphere at that precise moment. Yet that atmosphere was something that would not allow itself to be altogether ignored. I had seen enough of the things, the acts, and the appetites that were to justify and to bring down upon the world the tons of bombs that would someday begin to fall in millions. Did I know that my own sins were enough to have destroyed the whole of England and Germany? There has never yet been a bomb invented that is half so powerful as one mortal sin, and yet there is no positive power in sin, only negation, only annihilation, and perhaps that is why it is so destructive. It is a nothingness, and where it is, there is nothing left, 
a blank, a moral vacuum. It is only the infinite mercy and love of God that has prevented us from tearing ourselves to pieces and destroying his entire creation long ago. People seem to think that it is in some way a proof that no merciful God exists if we have so many wars. On the contrary, consider how in spite of centuries of sin and greed and lust and cruelty, hatred, avarice and oppression and injustice, spawned and bred by the free wills of men, the human race can still recover each time and can still produce men and women who overcome evil with good, hatred with love, greed with charity, lust and cruelty with sanctity. How could all this be possible without the merciful love of God, pouring out his grace upon us? How can there be any doubt where wars come from and where peace comes from when the children of this world, excluding God from their peace conferences, only manage to bring about greater and greater wars the more they talk about peace? We have only to open our eyes and look about us to see what our sins are doing to the world and have done, but we cannot see. We are the ones to whom it is said by the prophets of God, hearing hear and understand not, and see the vision and know it not. There is not a flower that opens, not a seed that falls into the ground, and not an ear of wheat that nods on the end of its stalk in the wind that does not preach and proclaim the greatness and the mercy of God to the whole world. There is not an act of kindness or generosity, not an act of sacrifice done, or a word of peace and gentleness spoken, not a child's prayer uttered that does not sing hymns to God before his throne and in the eyes of men and before their faces. How does it happen that in the thousands of generations of murderers since Cain, our dark, bloodthirsty ancestor, that some of us can still be saints? The quietness and hiddenness and placidity of the truly good people in the world all proclaim the glory of God. All these things, all creatures, every graceful movement, every ordered act of the human will, all are sent to us as prophets from God. But because of our stubbornness, they come to us only to blind us further. Blind the heart of this people and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. We refuse to hear the million different voices through which God speaks to us, and every refusal hardens us more and more against his grace. And yet, he continues to speak to us, and we say, he's without mercy. But the Lord dealeth patiently for your sake, not willing that any should perish, but they should all return to penance. Mother of God, how often in the last centuries have you not come down to us, speaking to us in our mountains and groves and hills, telling us what is to come upon us, and we have not heard you. How long shall we continue to be deaf to your voice and run our heads into the jaws of the hell that abhors us? Lady, when on the night I left the island that was once your England, your love went with me, although I could not know it and could not make myself aware of it. And it was your love, your intercession for me before God that was preparing the seas before my ship, laying open the way for me to another country. I was not sure where I was going, and I surely could not see what I would do when I got to New York. But you saw further and clearer than I, and opened the seas before my ship, whose track 
led me across the waters to a place I had never dreamed of, and which you were even then preparing for me to be my rescue and my shelter and my home. When I thought there was no God and no love and no mercy, you were leading me all the while into the midst of his love and his mercy, and taking me without my knowing anything about it to the house that would hide me in the secret of his face. Glorious Mother of God, shall I ever again distrust you or your Son, before whose throne you are irresistible in your intercession? Shall I ever turn my eyes from your hands and from your face and from your eyes? Shall I ever look anywhere else but in the face of your love to find my true counsel and to know my way in all the days and all the moments of my life? As you have dealt with me, lady, also deal with my millions of brothers who live in the same misery that I knew then. Lead them in spite of themselves and guide them by your tremendous influence, O holy queen of souls and refuge of sinners, and bring them to your Christ the way you brought me. Ilos tuos misericordis aculos ad nos converte et Jesum benedictum fructum ventris tui nobis ostende. Show us your Christ, lady. After this our exile, yes, but show him to us also now. Show him to us here, while we are still wanderers.